What is Truth? 9-11 Written by Greg Fernandez Jr. Narrated by Ryan Barry Recon by Fire You have a technique called Recon by Fire, which means you roll down a certain area and you fire at basically nothing to draw a fire to try to find out where people are. Matthew Onstead, U.S. Army, 4th Infantry Division. Iraq War veteran Matt Onstead is a close friend of mine. I met him in high school. He seemed confident, quick-witted, and kind-hearted. He was one of the first and only friends I made at the school. Like most of those friends, he was musically talented. 2008 was a transitional period for me as a rapper. The importance of musical content forced me to change the way I wrote my songs. Looking at the young children next to me and thinking about the new world to come, I was trying to be the change I wanted to see in the world. I was looking for truth inside of this world. I was looking for something missing within, and I correctly thought that we are change was the answer. I didn't see that the truth was already within me. Jesus Christ. I got a chance to interview Matt back in 2008 while we were making songs together. I had never heard of Recon by Fire before that conversation. How'd you come to be in the military? I asked. What made you sign that piece of paper? It was a time in my life where I had just lost my job, Matt began. I was working for a friend's mom. It had to do with the computer industry, and when the whole dot-com thing fell off, her business suffered from that. I was basically out of work. She pretty much supported me, her son, and a few other people. It was a down point, where I had nothing going on, and it seemed like a door that could lead me into a good future, because I had nothing. I was going nowhere, so I decided maybe there was a good way to build a base, get the experience, get the military behind me, and build off of that. This was what year? It was after 9-11. It was like late 2001. November or December is when I kind of decided. Started talking to a recruiter, and the earliest I could get in was March. And you joined the... the Army. I was 4th Infantry Division, 2nd Brigade, part of the 367 Armored Unit, stationed in Fort Hood, Texas, which was the largest army base in the world. It's mainly an armored unit, so you have a lot of tanks and things like that, or in the 1st Cavalry. 1st Cavalry was a huge in Vietnam, and World War I, World War II. Matt continued. They told us, Okay, we're going to be light. We have this many people, 18 people, 6 trucks, 3-man crews. You have your driver, your track commander, and then your gunner, and then they start training you from there. So in basic training, you get the basics on how to shoot and do your obstacle courses, and they get you into shape, and then they teach you the rules and regulation of the military. And once you get your unit, it's more geared towards your MOS, or job. What's MOS? MOS is your military operation speciality. Basically means that's your job title. When you first get in, you're on your best behavior, and after quite a few months, it wasn't like basic training anymore. Basic training is like by the book, by what's supposed to be. And then when you get to the unit, it's different. It's completely backwards. It wasn't long before Matt found himself in Kuwait. We deployed into Kuwait, Matt went on. We landed in an airport in Kuwait. Then we went to this place called Camp, which is basically a sand hole. That's where we met up with your vehicle. From that point, we didn't know what was next either. I think we spent two weeks there not knowing where we are going to go into Iraq. When are we going to cross the border and go up? I want to talk about the time when you said you guys were ordered to drive through the streets and get shot at. Okay, so when we first deployed to Iraq, we were about 45 minutes outside of Bequaba, so the downtown. The main part of Bequaba is about 45 miles outside of Baghdad, northwest I think. Then just north of that is where we were, 
at our first little, what they call FOB, which is a forward operating base. And it was our unit, 367, tanks and all the armor and headquarters. Headquarters division is like the scouts and the medics. We set up in the little lot and had pre-dug dirt boundaries. And our mission was to concentrate on Iranian group who lived in Iraq, called the MEK. MEK stands for Mujahideen al-Khalq. Basically, it was this military group of Iranians who lived in Iraq, Matt continued, who fought the Iranian government. Matt's unit was told that the MEK had been resisting the Iranian government for 20-something years, and I've heard through people that they are the most intelligent military group in the world. Every single one of them has a college degree, as far as I know. They're all college-educated. They have this place in Iraq that's probably a hundred acres or so, and they're fully operational inside of that. Inside of Iraq? I asked. Inside their little compound in Iraq. They're fully operational, Matt answered. It's a town. They have all their food, all their water needs are met. They had a Coca-Cola bottling plant in there. They're like an operational country inside of a little hundred-acre place. They had been fighting the Iranian government for years, and were supposed to be disarming these people. They had tanks. They had vehicles, they had weapons, everything. So they said that we needed to disarm these people because they were a threat to us. They were on our top terror list. So our colonel and some special forces went in and talked to the leader or leaders and said, this is the thing, we're supposed to disarm you because you're a threat. In trade, we will make sure you're protected. The Iranians' main issue was, if you disarm us, the Iranian government will find out and we're all dead. These people could not go back to Iran to see their family because everybody knows who they are and they'd be killed. So in trade, we said, we will take care of all of your positions as far as guarding your compound and safe holding your compound if you let us disarm you. So they said, okay, if you keep us safe, you can do what you want to do. We pulled a lot of tanks out of there. I mean, this is a military compound. They had buildings. Everything was set up. They had toilets. Nowhere else that I had been in Kuwait or Iraq where there were toilets. They had the whole nine yards. And at one point, they had a party, kind of, Matt continued, where our whole unit basically went over there. They hosted us. They fed us. I was talking to this one group of guys who were pretty high up. They all spoke English. All the people there went to college, have all studied in Europe, Great Britain, England. So I said, what's the deal? You can tell me. Why are we doing this to you? Because I didn't understand. If they're not a threat to us, why do we screw with them? And what I got out of it is he was telling me that when Clinton was working with the Iranian government, it was something to the fact of Clinton getting better prices or getting in on the oil trade. Clinton was trying to make his way in and do whatever the Iranian government said as part of this agreement. If you put this group, MEK, on your terrorist list, then we'll cut you a better deal. Kind of like an eye for an eye. The MEK. That's their enemy. It's like a civil war that's going on. I think basically Clinton was like, Never heard of them. Never going to run into them. Whatever. If this makes the deal go over, if we get cheaper prices, let's do it. So when it came time, when the terror list came up, these people were on the list. Is that the true story? I don't know. I heard that from one of them, talking to an MEK member. Did they seem like a threat at all? No, not to us. They're some of the kindest people I ever met. We used their internet facilities. They had no issue with it. The only issue they had was taking their guns away? Yeah, we don't want you to disarm us, not because we think we're going to overthrow us, but because Iran is going to kill us all. We will be screwed if you leave us out in the open. What do you think about John McCain, war hero, tortured, I asked. You know what, though? Matt answered. I've heard conflicting reports about him while I was a POW. 
I've heard certain stories and things that I don't know 100% about, but I heard as far as a POW goes, he wasn't your average POW. I just heard things, and I won't say anything in this particular, but okay, you're a POW. But guess what? Your POW history is in conflict. There's something that happened during your time as a POW that wasn't heroic. And I think using the POW thing to get the presidency is fucking bullshit, especially with the situation we're in now. It's almost like you're using it as a crutch. I'm not saying that being a POW is not messed up. I give it to the guy. The guy survived being a prisoner of war. I'm not going to take anything away from him being a prisoner of war. But that doesn't mean he was a hero. So to get back to the original question, Matt continued, I thought I'd give you a rundown from when we got there. So the MEK is disarmed, friendly, no shooting. They're happy. We're happy. They don't have to do anything. They don't stand guard of their compound. So to get back to the original FOB, it was swept from mines. They had found a couple of mines, but the reason why there were mines, there was this dirt lot we had in one of the MEK's old dumps. They just dumped stuff there. So in a combination of living in the old dump and the germs that are in the air and the sand fleas that everybody got bit by, everybody came down with dysentery, which means you crap your brains out. Diarrhea. Like you're always crapping? I asked. Like when you crap, you basically pee out of your butt. Nothing but liquid and it comes out quickly. I mean, you're just walking around and you feel fine and all of a sudden, you got a crap. You got no time to get there. There's no showers. There's nothing at this point. So we've basically been cleaning ourselves with baby wipes. So the MEK is disarmed and they come to our scout team and say, Hey, there's this dam. It's labeled dam number one as far as the United States is concerned. It's the lowest dam of the Tigris River. It's the most southern dam of the Tigris River and the 2-8 infantry had been guarding it. The reason they've been guarding it is because there's a fear of somebody trying to blow this dam up and flooding out the reservoirs of lower Iraq. So you guys are to go and relieve them of their duty, and you guys are going to guard it for an unannounced amount of time. So what you do is you have your radio tower set up and you communicate with us through that, and we bring you what's called a log pack, or logistics pack, which is your daily needs, your food. Well, come to find out, guarding this dam is like summer camp. You go down to the Tigris River, which is fresh water, and you can see 15 feet into the water. It's so clear and you can swim all day long. At first, everybody was like, Oh my God, somebody's going to bomb this. And after a week, everybody's hanging out in their PT shorts and t-shirts. There are guys diving off the dam, really like you're not deployed. And you have radio guard. One hour every 17 hours, you would have to watch the radio and it would rotate. You have to monitor the radio if someone calls. Every once in a while, they would get bored and they would pull some checkpoints and search vehicles and take AKs, machine guns, from people. And so we started gathering AKs. So you were told to go out there and take away their guns? Not completely. At this point, if you see someone who is hostile, you take away their weapon. How do you know if they're hostile? Well, maybe it's not that they're hostile. I can't remember correctly, but there was a reason why they were taking away people's guns. If somebody was driving around with a gun, you would take it from them. People drove around with guns? Oh yeah. There's no law out there. So we were guarding this base for about a month. Then they call us, and then they say, you're going to be relieved by this certain unit. You're off the damn duty. Nobody knew it was as chill as it was, because when people would come around, we would tighten up and have our gear on. So we found an old looted-out Iraqi training facility, and that's where we're going to make our base, our FOB, Forward Operating Base. Our area of operation, AO, is going to be the city of Bequaba, and spread out around the area. 
Our unit ended up taking control around Bequaba and the surrounding area. It was basically the size of New Jersey, so we were spread out. So they said, we want the scout platoon, six trucks of Humvees to escort the sergeant major, which is the highest ranking non-commissioned officer. We want you to escort him to the place so he can check it out and make the final decision on whether or not we're going to stay here. So on our way there, we saw our first action. We got fired at. Somebody fired. A civilian fired at us with an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade. Just one shot? One shot. It skimmed past one of the trucks. We all stopped. We all jumped out of the trucks and did a sweep of the area. We didn't see anything. So after that, you move on to your destination. We roll into this place. It's an abandoned training facility. So it's a couple of brick buildings and a lot. So from there, we started to set up. So in the setup procedure, you take all the engineers. You build dirt walls around everything. You set up guard positions in the important parts. They basically put us in the front building and said, you're going to be the people that we go to the most, so you need to be ready to roll. And that's when we took on our AO. We started patrolling the town. Patrolling the town? What do you mean? You give a presence patrol, Matt continued. You roll up and down the streets. You let people know the United States is there. Some people are smiling and laughing. Some people are throwing rocks at you. During this time, the first road that we rolled down was our in and out During that in and out we got shot at pretty much every time we rolled down the street. And there were these pine groves that were off the side of the road, like pine trees that grow out there. That's kind of their way to hide, like a little forest. And there's houses that we would get fired at and try to find people, and we could never find people. So this is when, I don't know when it came from, but the rule came in where we need to disarm everybody of their weapons in the local towns except for one weapon in each household. Because if you completely disarm a household, they're screwed. You take out all the weapons except for one gun. There would be people in their backyards that would have weapons caches buried in ground, like mortars and artillery rounds. We had to dig it up and take it from them. So we'd been there for two months or so, and we're starting to do smaller raids. Raids as in going to the houses, searching the houses, making sure everything's okay, and local intelligence is rolling in. Now when you raid, who's giving the orders? Local intelligence and the intelligence they can put together. Local intelligence? Yeah, like Iraqis that come up to you at the gate and are like, Hey, so-and-so lives in this village. He's heading attacks. He's a mastermind behind you guys getting shot at. So we would take the neighborhood and we would surround it. We'd go in through every household, take away every weapon they had and basically disarm the threat. Some people had no weapons. Some people had two weapons. Some people had caches and bombs in their backyard. That was kind of a daily occurrence. It's basically what you see on TV. A row of guys outside of the building and you basically storm the building. Kind of like a SWAT. Every day you do that. You go to town to town, cleaning out all the threats that you can. We get this local intel one day, and there was a guy who had weapons caches who had sold it to somebody, or told somebody where it was. This is where it was, and this is where he's going to be around this time. So we go, and we set up what we call an OP, observation point, and we watched the area. It was my truck, another scout truck, and our unit's major, with his crew. We watched it for three or four hours. Nothing happened. So we went over the area where they said it's supposed to be, and couldn't find anything. And on our way back, we were fired upon in this little town on the little one-way road on the side of the canal. So there's this canal that ran down the middle of the city and two one-way roads on each side. We were fired upon. We returned fire. And we looked for people. Then we called in our unit. So they sent our tanks. 
I think the original night, nothing turned up. They were gone? So that's where the idea came up, with what they would call recon by fire. It's a reconnaissance platoon, like we were. You have a technique called recon by fire, which means you roll down a certain area, and you fire at basically nothing to try to draw a fire, to try to find out where people are. Why? Doesn't that seem a little strange? I asked. It's a technique that's been around for a long time. RBF means you go through, you hose down the place, and if there's somebody, you hit somebody. Or you find somebody, or they fire back, and then you can find out where they're located. Sounds crazy, I said. Well, it's an old school technique, Matt responded. The likelihood is, if there's two people hiding in the bushes ready to shoot at somebody, the six trucks unload big guns on them, the likelihood is you're going to take much less damage than those people do, especially with the technology we have. And so, they decide to do a recon by fire, and I was in the middle of switching positions in the platoon. In between becoming the platoon sergeant's driver, I was drawing the gunner's position on the platoon sergeant's truck that night. The lead truck, which the gunner was Sergeant Barry, he was supposed to fire first, and once he fired at a certain position, everybody fired in that direction, and we already knew where we were firing. Everybody knew the position where we were supposed to fire, but he was supposed to fire first. And I think that's what happened was right before he fired, we got shot at. The tanks were... Right, there in the town waiting for this to happen, because this was the deal. So they rolled up and they spotted somebody, and there were this thing going on where they're firing back and we're firing back. We were pinpointing where the people were. The tanks had located where they were at. Then from there, I think there was a three-week period where multiple missions were run where they wanted us to do these recon by fires. Well, basically, what they were saying was going down there and draw fire. That's what they were saying. At that point... When you're already done a recon by when you've already done a recon by fire, your cover's blown. Everybody knows what you're doing and they're saying, roll down these streets and either fire first or get fired at, so our tanks can come in and find the people that are firing at you. On multiple occasions, every time we'd go down there, they'd be firing at us. And there was this situation where we had drawn the fire, we'd call the tanks in, tanks came in, they located them. There was still fire back. So we had people in trucks and dismounted on the trucks firing in this because the guns have this what they call tracer rounds. So every five rounds that are loaded into a weapon lights up. So they said watch the tank's tracer rounds and whatever the tank's tracer rounds are firing, that's where you fire. So we were all fired at. That was the night that I was like firing into the darkness and I got hit in my arm. I was like, what was that? Because it wasn't a straight shot. And you didn't feel it? I felt it, but it didn't feel like a gunshot. But I felt it, and it was dark out there, and I asked my platoon leader, Hey, do you see anything here? And he was like, No, you're good. Come to find out, when we went back to the base that night, I took my shirt off, and there was just blood. My t-shirt was stuck to my arm from blood. It was a graze, a nick. That's kind of what they used, that's kind of what they used us as. It was like, go out and draw fire and get shot at. How long was that? It was ongoing. There was a good two-week period where we did it like every other, every third night. Then it was off and on throughout the time we were there. Our platoon was put out as bait. Take your six trucks, run down there and draw fire. Dangle the hook and call in the tanks, because there's more equipped to deal with the situation. Okay, thanks. Use us as bait, the worm at the end of the hook. You know, fuck the casualties. I was up in the gun one of the times that we did it, and I was firing the Mark 19, which is like the automatic grenade launcher. It can just destroy an area. Well, you have to keep it clean or it won't work. The gunner wasn't taking care of the gun and it misfired on me. It wouldn't work. The gunner always had their personal weapon, or M16, so I just picked it up and just shot, 
I could hear the radio. There was a lot of controversy on the radio going on, and the truck is swerving, doing all this kind of stuff. But I'm concentrating on what I need to do, and when we got back, the driver and the TC, tank commander, and the guy we had in the dismount position kind of came to me later on and was like, I can't believe you're alive. What the? What do you mean you can't believe I'm alive? The driver, who was really a good friend of mine, was like, the whole time I was driving, I saw nothing but tracer rounds flying straight over the hood of the truck, like deadly close. That's why I was swerving around. Did you notice that? I was like, yeah, I kind of noticed jerking around up there. The TC came to me later. I was waiting for you to drop down into the turret. I was waiting for you to fall. And in my mind, I didn't know. I was into my thing, trying to do the right thing. I guess that's as close as it comes. But I wasn't aware of it at that time. I didn't see how close it was. Would you recommend the army to a young kid, 18, going into the military? Not now. No way. Why not? It's a guaranteed deployment. What do you think we should do in Iraq? Leave. Leave now? Just get out? Yeah. Their main thing right now is rebuilding the government. Rebuilding the structure of things. Our everyday soldier that's over there is not part of that. He's not the one sitting down on the desk saying this is what should happen. You can do that with no soldiers. You can do that over the phone. There's an embassy over there now. They're trying to make Iraq a normal deployment, like a one or two year deployment we have in Germany or Korea. You know there are 14 permanent bases in Iraq? Yeah. They're not going anywhere. It's ridiculous. Why? I don't know, I responded. We'll probably always have them. Why, though? You want to rebuild their government? You want to help them? You want to help what we took away from them? That's awesome. But why do we need a permanent over there? Okay, there's an embassy. We don't need permanent posts over there. There's no reason for it. We're not fighting terrorists anymore. What we're fighting against is decades and decades of civil war and this religious war that went on before we got there that had nothing to do with us, that's still going on, that has nothing to do with us. And when you stick your nose in it, try to make things right, it just adds fuel to the fire. Give a trillion dollars to Africa and see how many more lives are positively affected. Not say it's going to solve the problem, but how many lives are positively affected that way. That's what we're doing over there in Iraq. Especially if they don't want us there. Yeah, we got Saddam. We got rid of him. Guess what? Mission accomplished. Now what about Osama bin Laden? I don't even think about that anymore, said Matt. It's so off the wall with what's going on. From the time of 9-11, everything was just crisscross and blinded and braided into each other. I can't even think about Afghanistan. We have soldiers over there who are living in worse conditions than in Iraq. We have soldiers over there who are living in worse conditions than in Iraq and dealing with worse stuff than in Iraq that people have turned a blind eye to, almost. We need to sit down and think of what we're doing and what our concentrations need to be and why we're in the situation we're in now and think where we need to be, where we do not need to be. If you're worried about Osama bin Laden funding and being a part of 9-11, then find Osama bin Laden. What are you doing in Iraq? Osama bin Laden isn't in Iraq. There's no way he'd be there. Well, because we're not actively hunting Osama. We're not, Matt agreed. We haven't charged him with these crimes. He'd never been charged for this crime. Matt then asked me, You think Osama bin Laden was the guy who said, Drive these planes into the Twin Towers on 9-11? No, I quickly answered. You think Saddam Hussein was? Asked Matt. No, I said again. Do you think the country of Iraq as a whole were the people that said, Drive a plane into the Twin Towers? No. It's so, he continued. 
It's mush now. It's oatmeal to me. What does that mean? I asked. Things are so screwed up and so twisted. What do you do? Cut our losses. We lost a lot of people. Number one, a lot of money. A lot of respect from other countries. How do we get that back? Unless we figure out what really happened. Well, as long as we keep going on to war with people and keep a military standpoint on everything, we'll never get it back. So we got to, I asked, bring people home, be neutral, rebuild our ties with all those other countries that don't like us anymore. You think we should have gone into Iraq? I asked. Not at all, Matt responded. Never seemed like a good idea. The reasoning for going into Iraq is so blurred that it should have never happened. Some people say Saddam Hussein funded the 9-11 attacks. Others say that he was so combative towards the search for weapons of mass destruction. There is no one reason why we went. If it was 9-11, we've lost twice as many American soldiers than casualties we took on the 9-11 tragedy. If it was a WMD, was it worth it to lose that many people over a couple weapons that he might have had? No. Bush was basically forced to say that the reason why we went in there was based on intelligence. Saddam was supposed to have WMDs, so the people who tasked with finding the truth came back to him and said no. Bush still went in front of the American people, in front of the world, and told us that Saddam was building these weapons, after people told him no. And then when they realized that this accusation was not true, they should have sent the troops home, or at least began to pull back our troops. Even if you don't pull the troops out, they should have taken a second look at what was going on. This has been What is Truth? 9-11 Written by Greg Fernandez Jr. Narrated by Ryan Barry Copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr. Production copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr.